Take your Bibles for a moment and turn to Romans chapter 13. We're going to back, we'll go back to 1 Corinthians in just a moment. But we'll start with Romans 13. As you're turning there, uh, I would mention in, in uh, light of what Mike said about Heather playing this morning, having his daughter up here, that the uh, Anderson family, Dan's father and mother, are with us today. And so they got to see Dan up here. And that song, His Robes for Mine, is written by another son, Chris. Most of you probably know that, but it's, uh, in case you didn't, uh, what a wonderful privilege that is for them to be here as we sang this song today. We're going we're gonna to do a lot of background information today, so hang in there with us. Wonderful passage of Scripture. But the Corinthians were struggling in many areas. And the great church father, Augustine or Augustine, would have identified very much with this church in some ways. In his youth, he had been quite a, quite a character. As a matter of fact, even though he'd been raised by a godly mother, he, he rejected that. Uh, he uh, lived with uh, a woman for 13 years. He, he started, uh, she was 18 years old, or he started at 18, lived with her for 13 years. Even had a child out of wedlock, which is quite a scandalous at that time. And he continued that way for quite some years. And then uh, at his time of his conversion, uh, he heard these words in Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14 being read. He either read them himself or heard somebody else read them. These are the words that he heard. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ to make no provisions for the flesh in regards to its lust. Uh, that was the turning point in the life of Augustine as he turned to Christ at that time and, and began to put on Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. But that didn't stop his temptations. Just because he had uh, come to Christ and, had, and would wanted to put on Christ and live in that way, he continued to be tempted with various sins, and especially immorality, for quite some time. Uh, he did never, never gave in to that, however. And the reason he did not was because he recognized what we're going to talk about today, the, the, very, the great transformation that had happened in his life through Jesus Christ. At one point when he was tempted to sin in this area, he said to himself, Thou fool, dost not thou know that thou art carrying God around with thee? Now that was his King James version of it, but you get the point. He realized that, that God lived in him. How could he turn himself over to sinful behavior knowing that, that Jesus Christ lived in him. However, the Corinthians, although that was true of them, and Paul's going to talk about that a little later on in this chapter, uh, they were not catching that yet. They didn't quite understand who they were as transformed Christians. Uh, keep in mind, they'd probably only been saved about six years. Uh, this church is only about six years old. Uh, and they were seeing nothing wrong with some of the behavior that they were engaging in, including immoral behavior that we'll talk about some today. Uh, the Greeks saw the body as evil, and so it didn't matter what you did with your body. And they had bought into that worldview at that time. And so they rationalized their sins, and, and they talked themselves into believing that, that they were living spiritually even when they were engrossed in some of the worst of all corrupt behavior. Paul's going to attempt to convince them throughout this book that they've gone wrong direction. They're making mistakes they're choosing to go a wrong way. And he reminds them, as we see in verse 11, of their transformed nature. So he starts there. He takes them back to what we might call the gospel and the, the transformation that took place at the moment of their conversion. We looked at that in detail last week, but, but look at verse 11 with me. Some of you, uh, such were some of you, but you were 
washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. Now notice all those things that he mentions here being washed, sanctified, and justified are already things that happen at the moment of salvation. These are not something we chase after. These are not something we desire. These are not something we, we grow into. These are, something, these are things that happened at the moment of our conversion. And so because, and this is so pivotal, so important, not only for our text we'll look at, but for your, your Christian life and mine, is that we realize that all that we have, all that we do, how we live is based upon something that happened to us because of Jesus Christ. He, he is the one who washed us of our sins. He is the one who just uh, sanctified us or set us apart for his own purposes. He is the one that justified us so that our sins are forgiven and we're given the righteousness of Christ. Without that, nothing else that we're going to talk about today matters. If it wasn't for those, these truths, these transactional truths, everything we're talking about today is mere behavioralism. It's just changing your behavior. And Paul's not into that. He is saying basically this, a spiritual change should translate to a spirit of a everyday life change. If you've truly been washed, sanctified, and justified, it should change the way you live in your everyday life. That's his point. That's where he's taking us in this passage of Scripture. So he's going to say these three transactions that took place should lead to a, in our lives to three major changes in our everyday behavior. And we're going to look at two of those this morning and look at another one next time. But the first one is this. They now live by new principles. They live by new principles. Look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything or any of them. Uh, the, the, these Christians uh, knew they were new creatures, I think. Paul had taught them that. But they had rationalized that all things were lawful for them. That is, they could do anything they wanted to do. It didn't matter uh, what it was. Because they are now saved, they could do whatever they wanted to do. They justified their actions in that way. So they were perverting the liberty they had in Christ. They were set free by Christ. uh, And they were taking that liberty and perverting it for a license to sin. Uh, They were thinking, since we're no longer under the law... We're no longer in the Mosaic Law. Paul taught that very clearly. Because that's true, we no longer have to be living in obedience. That's a big difference, folks. We don't have to obey the Lord because we've been set free from Him. As a matter of fact, if you pay too much attention to obedience, they were saying, you become legalistic. You become like a Pharisee. You're too, too wrapped up in obedience. And Paul is going to blow that out of the water in just a few moments. But as he, as he talks about these things, they were even rationalizing sexually immoral behavior because they were free to do that which they wanted to do. So we find that they were, for example, in chapter 7, some of these men were going down and meeting with, well, let's put it this way, chapter 7, they, some of these men and women were foregoing regular physical relationships with one another in the marriage. But in chapter 6, as we'll see next time, they were going down to the, to the temples and fornicating with the temple prostitutes. That's how far they had twisted this thinking in their mind. So that they were now involved in these immoral behaviors. 
Now here's the problem. This is where we're going to spend a little bit of time. We, we have to understand the worldview of that moment to understand what's going on here. Why these people would think that way. Why would they think they're Christians and live this way? Why would they think they're Christians and live without following or obeying Christ? Why would they think they're Christians and live immorally? How could they, how could they justify that in their minds? And they had done so because the worldview that permeated their society taught exactly that same thing. And they had not yet backed away from that. You know, whenever we fight, uh, whenever we come up with an issue in culture that challenges the truth of God's word, we have to resist that. I want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 for a moment before we go back. 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul's writing to the same group of Christians a few months later. And he's still on the same topic. Uh, these people are allowing the worldview that permeated their society to govern how they lived. And here's what Paul said they should be doing, verse 5 of chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Basically, he says this, we take everything that the culture throws at us, and we filter that through the, through the knowledge of Christ, through the Word of God, to see what part of that, that teaching and culture is biblically sound and what part is not. And we're going to find some things in our culture are just fine. But many other things are not. And this example here we're being given back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 was certainly not. And here's the worldview I want to talk about. What was the worldview uh, pertaining to morality and marriage and women and so forth that permeated their society that they had not yet broken away from? They had not left, they had filtered it through the, the knowledge of Christ. And so I would need to talk about that because Paul's going to be talking about that issue all the way through at least chapter 11. And, and this is extremely pertinent for our times with all the gender issues and, and the changing of thinking in all these different areas and things that have permeated our society in the last 20 or 30 years. What a, what a change has taken place. As a matter of fact, uh, when I preached through 1 Corinthians in 1991, Okay, some of you weren't even born then, but nevertheless, what a change in our culture in 30 years. It is, some of the things I'm going to be talking about today were not even on the horizon in 1991. And yet they are here today. Our culture has changed. Our culture is, 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 is becoming more and more obviously corrupt. And unfortunately, many Christians are buying right into it. And so let's think about women and marriage and morality for just a moment. What was going on at this time? The Greeks viewed women almost as slaves. Uh, they, were under, they were under the authority and control of their husbands by both custom and by law. Aristotle said that regarded the inferiority of women as inerrant in the sex. He believed by being a woman you're inferior. As a, as a result, many wives and female children spent their whole lives in what they called the Ganaconites. That was the domestic portion of the house. And so many women never left that. They were there for domestic purposes. They had children. They raised children. They stayed in that section of the house and rarely, if ever, even came out. For many women, it was then a monotonous existence wrapped around domestic affairs and personal dress and they, they did not have conversations with men, including conversations with their husbands. It was very unusual for an intellectual conversation between a husband and a wife at that time. 
Women didn't share in the intellectual life. They were domestic, basically domestic slaves. They took care of the house. They took care of the husband's children. And that was pretty much it. But there was another group of women called the Hatterites. The Hatterites were not fully Greek. And they were not allowed to marry Greek people, Greek men. But they were allowed to have freedom to be around the men. And so they, they were the companions of the Greek men. They ran around with them. They became their buddies. They became sometimes their mistresses. These Hatterai had all sorts of freedoms that wives did not have, but they were not married to the Greek people. Demonstrates, one of the uh, Greek philosophers at the time, said this about Greeks' view of women. Hatterai, we keep for the sake of pleasure. Concubines for the ordinary requirements of the body. Wives to bear our legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our household. That was the three divisions of women. The, uh, the uh, Hatterai who could be their friends and buddies. The uh, prostitutes and concubines for the physical involvement. And then wives to have children and raise them. By the time Paul wrote this particular letter, there had been some prominent Greek and Roman women who had, had risen to the top and got out of this, this quagmire. But most had not, and most women at that time were basically slaves. Uh, they were property. They were owned by the husbands. There was even some times when the husbands could put to death their wives if they did not obey them as they wanted them to. Young girls were born in the uh, Genocanites and stayed there their whole life. And when they got married, they were translated right from there, that Genocanites, to their husbands. And virtually had no other exposure to the outside. If a man wanted to talk to a woman, he talked to one of the Heterites. If he wanted romance, he turned to the prostitutes or the concubines. If he wanted supper or a child, he turned to his wife. Now, that was the environment that Christianity and the gospel of Jesus Christ infiltrated. So you have to keep that in mind. You have to know what was going on at that time. What a sharp contrast to what Jesus Christ taught about marriage and morality, and women, and the whole works. What a contrast. The world had never seen anything like it. And everywhere true Christianity has gone, from that day to now, the, the, the women have been elevated in our understanding. Their positions have been improved. Their status has been improved. Not all at once, but over time that has been historically true, no matter what you might hear some saying today. The Lord taught men... To love their wives as their own bodies. The Lord taught men to treat the wives as Christ treats his church. They were not slaves. They were not property. They were not things to be used. They were human beings made in the image of God. Just as the men had been. They were to be loved. And they were to be cherished. They were not second class citizens. They were not inferior to men. They were equal to men in Christ. They were not the common, this, and this was not the common concept of the world that the Corinthians lived in. So you have to get that. You have to understand that as we go forward. This church has not learned those things yet. They're only six years old and they're in process of, of coming from a world view that had been part of their life for centuries that just now they were, they were finding out that that was wrong and that Christ had a whole different view about women and marriage and, and sex and all these things. And they were simply learning. And so the, the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, shows us the process they ordered to take. Now with all that in mind, all that background, I'm going to now turn to the text, chapter 
6 verse 12. How were they to live differently because of the transition that had taken place in their lives? How were they to live differently because they had been justified and and sanctified and, and cleansed or regenerated? How were they to live differently because Jesus Christ was in their lives? How were they to live differently? Well, first of all, they were to have different principles to live by. And there's two that Paul points out here, starting with verse 12. First of all, even lawful things must be profitable, or said a different way, transformed Christians will want to live profitable lives. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Many believe, many commentators believe that they're turning a phrase of Paul's against him, taking it out of context, because Paul had taught they were no longer under the Mosaic law, right? They've been set free from the Mosaic law. We're not law-bound Christians. We're set free in Christ. And they were taking that out of context and said, well, Paul said all things are lawful. So we can do anything we want to do. And they're twisting those things. And Paul is saying that's not the case. And Paul says here, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. He's not saying that sin is lawful for him. He's not saying it's okay to be sinful. He's talking here about areas that are gray, areas that have no right or wrong per se, areas where the the scriptures do not directly address. And he says of those things, uh, all things are lawful. I can do those things, but are they profitable? That's a good question, isn't it? For example, the law might say I can drive 70 miles per hour, but if the conditions are bad, I shouldn't. Not profitable. Marsha and I were driving to Lincoln, Nebraska this year, and uh, there's a huge rainstorm like I've never seen before while I was driving come down. It was so bad. We're on the interstate going 70, and uh, we're on, and it was so bad we couldn't see to the front of our car. Uh, finally, I, I, I couldn't even pull off. I couldn't tell where the sh- shoulder was. We had to stop on the interstate at that point in time, and that scared me because I figured there were some yo-yos behind me somewhere that decided I got, fr- I got fancy lights on my truck. I'm just going to plow through. But nobody did that, so we, we survived that little adventure. It was lawful for me to go 70, but it sure wasn't profitable. There's a better law that superseded that, and that's driving it under the conditions, right? And so Paul is saying, yeah, it might be lawful to do these things, but is it profitable? That's a good test. So you and I, as we look at anything we're doing that's not already spelled out directly in Scripture, one of the very first things we need to do is examine the profitability of that particular thing. So let me me throw a few questions at you that you can look at in that regard. Is the thing I want to do, will it help or harm my relationship with Jesus Christ? Will it help or harm my body, which is the temple of God? Will it help or harm others around me? And here's another one. Does God love it? When one loves God, one loves what God loves. This puts, this puts appropriate guardrails around our life. Now here's a second principle. We'll not be enslaved by our desires. Or said another way, transformed people are not enslaved by desires. Look at verse 12 again. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. There are many things that are not wrong in and of themselves that become wrong when they become uh, something that we can't break, a habit. Anything, folks, that enslaves us 
anything that becomes our master, anything that controls us but Jesus Christ, shouldn't be there. We should not allow these things to enslave us and control us. Now, I could go off on a lot of different areas here. Uh, for example, smoking is not only bad for your body, but I've been told by everybody who's ever tried to stop is one of the most difficult habits in the world to stop. Extremely addictive, extremely enslaving. But we can go to a lot more modern things. What about cell phones? Now I'm really going to get in trouble, right? You're going to start clapping right now, right? Cell phones. You know the iPhone's about a dozen years old? That's all. And yet, it is absolutely in charge of our society. There are people that couldn't possibly walk down the street without one in their hand. There, there are people that, that are on there hours and hours a day texting and, and what, playing games and watching videos and whatever else they're doing on those things, but they can't live without them. Is that enslaving? Come on now. That's enslaving, folks. Something outside of Christ has now taken control of your time, your energy, your thoughts. Well, what about social media? Now that goes along with it, doesn't it? I, I read every once in a while on social media usually of somebody who's going to drop Facebook or something else because they can't, they're so enslaved by it that they, they, they play with it all the time. They spend hours a day scrolling through, looking at this, that, and the other, talking to friends they've never met and will never meet and will not be at your funeral. Right? That's what somebody's once said. You know what a friend is? A person who comes to your funeral and doesn't look at their watch. You think about that one. Okay, I could go on for all afternoon, right? All day, talking about different things that tend to enslave us. The point is, anything that comes along that is enslaving us is not that which should have that place in our lives. The context here, though, primarily is sexual desires. These people had allowed sexual desires that were all right in their culture to enslave and control them so that they could not walk with Christ as they should. And as a result of that, Paul is basically saying, folks, you can't have two masters. You can't, you can't have the master of sexual sensuality and the master of Jesus Christ. A choice has to be made. And they were going down to these prostitutes down at the temple, and we'll talk about that more next week, because they thought that was fine. They, they were controlled by that. They didn't want to stop that. I don't know, I haven't met anybody recently that's gone down to a temple to meet with the temple prostitutes. Have you? I know of all sorts of people who are Christians who are all engaged in pornography, who, who have allowed pornography to enslave them and control them, and they, they're unable to stop because it is their master. Paul's not calling here for asceticism. He's not even calling necessary for abstinence, but he's saying we must not allow anything to enslave us and to control us, but Jesus Christ. That's a radical talk, isn't it? That's a radical change in the lives of the Corinthians and often in the lives of ourselves as well. They've been transformed. Now live like you've been transformed. Now there's a second principle we'll look at, and that is they now have a new master. They have new principles, but they have a new master. Verse 13 uh, food is for the stomach, and stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God was not only raised the Lord, but also raised us up through his power. Now this is a kind of convoluted couple of verses. 
So let me kind of parse it out here and see if we can get it. He is not calling, Paul is not calling for us to transform ourselves. Christ already did that back in, the, in verse 11. We're already, if we're Christians, we've been transformed. We've been regenerated. It is because we have been transformed by Christ that we now live differently. And if we've been transformed by Christ, we should be living differently because now we live for a new master. And that master is not anything that enslaves us. It's not anything that's unprofitable. That master is Jesus Christ. That's basically, in a nutshell, what he's saying. But the Corinthians did not get this uh, they were saying this, and again going back to their culture, my soul belongs to God. Now I want you to catch this. My soul belongs to God, and when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. But my body belongs to me, and I'll do with it as I please. Now first of all, that sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? But it's not weird either then or now. In that culture, the Stoic worldview permeated and the Stoic, the Greek Stoics taught that our body was a throwaway. Our bodies were not important. It didn't really matter what you did with your body. All that mattered is your soul. And so the Corinthians were believing they could be spiritual, they could be in touch with God, and do whatever they wanted to with their body. No connection. That's Stoic worldview. And the Greeks were there in Corinth, and that's exactly what uh, they were, uh, the Corinthians were buying into and had not yet moved from. So they could go down to the, to, the, to the prostitutes and they could engage with that because it was simply their body. But in their heart and in their soul, they were still right with God. Now we, we find that odd and we find that kind of disconnected. But folks, uh, maybe you have not noticed this is exactly the worldview today. In 1991, when I preached this last time, this did not exist. At least not out of the academia world. But there's a worldview now theory that you may have never heard of by this name, but you have seen it in action. It's called personhood theory. Personhood theory says this, there is a difference between being a human and being a person. Now does that sound stupid or what? But let me go on. There's a, and if it's everything that we're seeing happening in our culture right now, there's a difference between being a human and being a person. A human would, would translate over to a body, our biology. But a person is who we are on the inside. See the disconnect? Now let me show you where this fits with so many things and you'll get it. Long ago, the argument over abortion was that by aborting a child, you're taking a human life, Right? And the, uh, those pro-abortion denied that. This isn't a human. This is just a thing. This is a mass. Science has disproven that now in recent years. And everybody, everybody, everybody on both sides of the issue know that in the womb of a mother is a, is a human baby. A real baby. A body. A baby. Has that stopped the pro-abortion people? Not at all. Why? 
because they distinguish between being a human and being a person. A human is a throwaway. It's a body. What really matters is not the body, but the person. And so we can kill the body and not be bothered by that because we haven't killed the person until that per, uh, body actually becomes a person. Is that crazy or what? Let's bring it on over to our gender issues today. This is the, this is the same theory that's for euthanasia, for transgenderism, for homosexuality. How is it that even some Christians can say, uh, I can live in a homosexual lifestyle or an immoral lifestyle in general and still be spiritual? Because they're separating the body from the soul. What I do with my body has no connection with our, my heart, my soul, my person. That is Stoicism. That is modern version of exactly what the Corinthians were dealing with at that time. But we brought it up to date now. That's why you don't win an argument with an abortionist. You say, well, you're killing a life. Well, no, I'm killing a body. It's not a person yet. Well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be, uh, behave this way morally, but, but that's my body. It's not my person. Uh, my body tells me I'm a man, but my person tells me I'm a girl, or vice versa. That's exactly what the Stoics taught. That's exactly the worldview that the Corinthians were dealing with. You and I weren't born into that, but it's infiltrating the world around us, isn't it? And so it's important to see what's happening here. Warren Wiersbe said concerning this section, he said, they treated sex as an appetite to be satisfied and not as a gift to be cherished and used carefully. Sensuality is to sex what gluttony is to eating. Both are sinful and both bring about disastrous consequences. There's nothing wrong with eating. We all do it. We all like it. But there's something wrong with gluttony. There's nothing wrong with sex, but there's something wrong with immorality. Wiersbe again pointed out that that. Sex outside of marriage is like uh, robbing a bank. You're taking what doesn't belong to you. For a moment, there's exhilaration. You, you have this, these funds, this money. But ultimately, you pay a price. And that would be a biblical picture. Paul then tells them, look, there's two things contesting for your bodies. Pornea, immorality here, and the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot be loyal to Jesus Christ and allow immorality in your lives you cannot serve two masters. And besides, God is going to do away with these things. Look at what he says in verse 13. He'll do away with the, with the stomach and food. Those things are temporary. He's going to, but, but on verse 14, but we're going to be raised from the dead to have eternal bodies, eternal life. And so how should we then live when we know these things? When we know that what, uh, this, these things that now want to enslave us are only temporary things sinful things at that, then why would we want to live for those things, knowing that one day the Lord will raise us up through His power, just as He rose Jesus Christ from the dead. Why then live for that which would perish? Some years ago, a guy named Robert Munger wrote a little booklet, mostly a pamphlet, named called My Heart, Christ Home. Some of you have read that. And if you haven't, you can go online and get it. This, this man had come to Christ, and uh, he was reading one day in Ephesians 3.16 that said this, that, that Christ may be at home in our hearts by faith. 
And so he started to think, is, I know I'm saved, Christ is in me, but is Christ at home in me? Is he comfortable living in me? Am I living in such a way that he is at home in me? And so in this little pamphlet, he takes an imaginary journey with Christ. And he invites Christ to take an overview of his life, his heart, as a house. And so he starts taking Christ from room to room in his house and showing these things to Christ. So this is his imaginary account. He take, took Christ, first of all, in the library where there was the books and, and magazines, and there was a study of the mind. This is what he was thinking and how he thought. And as we find, as we go through each of the rooms, Christ wants adjustments. He wants change. And, and even here, right off the bat, the Lord pointed out that you're thinking a certain way because of what you're reading and what you're absorbing. And those things need to be replaced by that which is wholesome and edifying. He took him into the dining room where the appetites and the desires were. And Christ pointed out that many of his appetites were wrong. He desired things that were not right. And we're going after those. He then goes to the living room. Now, the living room was the most cozy room in the house. Had a nice fireplace and good chairs. And Jesus said to him, why don't we meet here every morning for a time of fellowship together and communion together? And Munger said, yeah, let's do that. And so for a while, every morning they met together and they talked about the things of Christ and read the scriptures together. And yet as time moved on, that became old hat and he got busy and distracted. And and before long, Jesus was in the room by himself. And ultimately, the Lord calls him back to that time of fellowship that he was missing so much. Then he goes to the workroom. In the workroom, there's the workbenches and tools. And, and the Lord begins to show him how he can do something with his life only through the power and instrumentality of Christ himself. Then it gets more interesting because he goes to the rec room. The rec room is where he kept his friendships and his amusements and so forth. And in that rec room, the Lord said, you know what? You can't continue some of these relationships. You can't continue some of the things you're doing and walk with me. Things seem to be going pretty good. And then one day Jesus said, I smell an odor in this house. Something stinks here. And Munger knew immediately what Jesus was thinking about, but he wasn't going to tell him. Jesus started looking throughout the house and he found a, a, a closet. And in the closet stored away in that hall closet was all sorts of leftover sinful behaviors. Leftover attitudes, things left over from his old life. And, and Munger loved those things. He didn't want those things to be going. So he resisted Jesus. He said, I will not throw those things away. I love them. And Jesus said, okay. But I can't stay in a house that smells like this. I will go out and live on the back porch. And as Jesus went out and lived on the back porch, uh, Munger began to recognize he was losing that precious fellowship with Christ. Not his salvation, but the sweet fellowship that he had enjoyed. Christ was outside while he enjoyed his, his stuff on the inside. And so he cleaned out the closet. But then after a time, and if you've been down this road, you know this. After a time, he began to realize, this is wearing me out. Doing all these things that, uh, that the Lord wants me to do is just overwhelming. I'm, I'm worn out. I'm weary. How can I keep this up? And then he realized there was a problem. He still owned the house. And so he went and he looked up the title deed to the house and he gave it to Christ. He said, from now on, you are the master of the house. From now on, you are the owner and I am yours. And from that point on, 
He began to live for Christ, not because of behavioral change, but because the Lord was the master and the Lord of his life. And that began to change the way he wanted to live and the way he did live. That little booklet has been helpful in so many people's lives as they look at their own life and realize the things that need to be worked on in their lives. I think Paul would would approve of that kind of thing in this group of Christians here. These are people who had compartmentalized their lives, as we often do. That certain areas of their lives were just fine. But there were other things, hidden things, secret things, things that nobody else knew about. Things that some knew about, but they didn't want to change. And these areas, they rationalized and justified. And Paul is saying, look, you cannot serve two masters. You either either give the title deed to Christ, or you live for yourself and never have the light relationship that Christ intended for you to have and gave you when you were saved. And so as we look at this passage of Scripture, uh, some of this could be very difficult for us, but it's right up to date, isn't it? It tells us exactly where we're living now. It tells us we're having the same issues that they had 2,000 years ago and the same solutions. And that solution is found here. Here, I want to repeat it before I'm done. It's not found in behavior modification. It's not found in cleaning up your whole life piece by piece. It's found in recognizing who you are in Christ. That he's justified you. He's sanctified you. He's regenerated you. He's made you a new creature in him. And on the basis of that new creation... These other things fall into place because we want to serve the Savior who saved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for your your word. And I trust, Lord, as we've looked at some difficult things today, that this is helpful. And that there are people here today with us, Lord, that um, who might need Christ as Savior and have never even thought about it, perhaps. But maybe this day is the day that you change them, regenerate them, and wash them, and sanctify them. And others of us, Lord, who do know you as Savior, there there are areas of our life that need to be addressed, but mostly the area of who is going to be in charge here, who is in control, who has the title deed to our lives. And Father, may this day be the day that many of us say, you know what, it's time that I give over my life to Christ and that he be the true master of everything within me. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.